This episode was recorded on Jinnaburra country. Jinni means lawyer vine and Burra means people. The Jinnaburra people are the traditional owners of the mountains and valleys where the lawyer vine grows. Their country is in southern Queensland, including the Mullaney area, as well as parts of the Glasshouse Mountains, Somerset, Moreton Bay and Brisbane Council areas. I would like to pay my respects to Jinnaburra elders past and present. Hello friends, I'm Kirsty Costa and this is Weekend Birder. This podcast is created and funded by me. And one of the best things about being independent media is that there is no pressure to compete with any other podcast or person. In fact, it's all about collaboration and supporting each other. This year, I was so delighted when another birding podcast came on the scene. And I was even more delighted that that podcast host has become a friend of mine. The podcast is Death by Birding, and its host is Caesar Fuchmaran. And if you haven't met Caesar before, you are in for a treat. Here's how Caesar got sucked into the world of birds. I suppose, like birds for me, were uh, sort of a gradual thing. Like, I, it wasn't it wasn't any singular event that really got me into birds. It was just this progressive obsession that developed over time, just from seeing like bits and pieces of birds in the wild. You know, I've always been into nature and I've always been a naturalist and I kind of go through waves of obsessions and it started I think as a child with fungi through my uncle who's a mycologist and then probably took a, like a break in my teen years. I think that everyone has that sort of adolescent period where they sort of step away from the things they're truly passionate about and then I was fortunate enough to find that again in my 20s and uh, birds just made themselves very apparent to me uh, through a lot of other avenues when I was looking for frogs or I was looking for um, snakes and other marsupials and stuff like that. An owl here and there and then a regent bowbird and a paradise rifle bird and just little bits. So no great sort of life-changing event, I suppose but more so just um, trickles. It's so hard to, to consider like, you know, when do you become a birder? Because I think for a lot of people, like it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a dirty word at first. You're kind of like, am I really a birder? Am I a bird watcher? In reality, I think, yeah, it was, it wasn't even getting my first pair of binoculars because um, I'd had binoculars forever and I used them for other things. But when I first started getting into photography and started like chasing birds to take photos of, and birds are just such a neat, group. They're such a wonderfully neat group within nature. You know, they they all have very similar morphological features. They all have feathers and beaks and, you know, they lay eggs and they kind of are in every habitat on earth. Anywhere you go, you you'll find birds. And once I started realizing how accessible they are and you know, coming from looking for frogs where it was like, okay, here's this really short window where you can look for frogs. You need to wait for rain. Most of them don't do anything during the day. And so, you know, coming from that space and then discovering that, you know, birds are everywhere at all times of the year, it was just like, I don't know, it was very enchanting, I suppose, and very exciting. I'm sure there are quite a few people right now nodding their heads and agreeing with Caesar. Once you start noticing birds, it's hard not to see them everywhere. Another thing that you might relate to is this next story from Caesar. It all started when he wanted to find a rufous owl in Townsville. So I'd just come back from Thailand and I'd found a bunch of owls over there and I thought, you know what, it's about time that I, I nailed down Rufus Owl. And so a good friend of mine, Harrison, and I built up this little plan to go and finally nail Rufus Owl, which aside from uh, sort of the Victorian Moorpawks, 
you know, those pesky moorhawks that go over to Victoria. This was my last mainland owl species that I needed to see and photograph. So the trip itself was quite spontaneous, but uh, it was, I suppose, spurred on by the fact that we were very confident in finding a day-roosting rufous owl that was well-known in one of the botanic gardens. With that knowledge at hand, we headed out with a mission that we felt very confident in. My friend Harrison actually went out the day before and he spotted the owl in quite a low-hanging branch in an area that, you know, thankfully wasn't going to uh, upset the owl. If we spotted it, we were very happy. It was like, this is great. We don't have to intrude on this owl's space. We can, I can visualize it during the day. I'll be in and out. It'll be wonderful. And so we got out to this spot and uh, it became very evident very quickly that this owl wasn't there anymore. <laughs> and we kind of looked at each other and we're like, that's fine. Like, we've got other locations. We'll be fine. Let's just scan some trees and uh, if it's not here we'll just head to the next location and so yeah after about an hour or two like no owls no signs of the owls so we moved on to the next location and again a couple of hours there like not even any whitewash which for those that don't know is just uh, a collection of feces that when owls roost in the same spot over a period of time it just builds up it's a it's just a very obvious clue as to their whereabouts so again we looked at each other we're like it's okay we've got one more location we'll head there and uh, i'm sure it'll be there but if it's not it'll be fine we'll just we'll just try again uh in the first location so again the third location we hit we probably tore apart every single tree at that site and uh, there was not a single sign of this owl i was starting to sweat like i was getting very very nervous because at the beginning of the day i think i'd gotten up to sort of 4 a.m. At the beginning of the day, I was like, this is the day that I'm going to get my first Rufus Owl. I was ecstatic. I had my camera with me. I had my binoculars were charged and ready to go. They can be. And I just was like, I don't know. I was just pumped up. I was, uh, it's rare for me to find new owls, right? Like most of the time I have to go internationally. So this was just a big moment for me. And I pulled my friend out to spend this whole day with me. Like I kind of just felt like I owed it to him and myself and, you know, everyone that had to listen to me ramp up this adventure. And so, again, we looked at each other and we thought, let's go have lunch. We'll have a little break. And then after lunch, we'll go back to the first location and we will look at every single tree in this park. We'll spend hours if we have to. And so that's what we did. We had our lunch. We then headed back to the first forest. And uh, we were there for hours. Like, I'm not kidding. We were just like so exhausted. I was getting really frustrated. I was probably getting a little grouchy. Harrison, you've dragged me all the way to this park. You told me that this was a guaranteed bird and now I'm here and there's nothing. Eventually, there was a tree on the other side of the bank to where he'd seen it the day before. And I remember earlier in the day, I said, Harrison, can we just have a look at that tree? And he goes, oh, it's really hard to get to. I was like, it just, I just had a good feeling about it. I got around to that tree and immediately there were two rufous owls just roosting, looking down at me. And so that was wonderful. It was that like little bit of payoff. And so, yeah, it was just really exciting. It just goes to show that you don't really need to go to another country to see wonderful and extraordinary animals because the rufous owl is such a unique owl. Like, kind of just reminded me of, um, I don't know, an orange powerful owl, <laughs> like a stripy powerful owl, I suppose. But it was just, yeah, it was just wonderfully exciting to enter a new habitat and on that day, I saw, I saw my first little kingfisher. I saw my first uh, shining flycatcher. Yeah, it was just lovely. The rufous owl is Australia's second largest owl. It stands at 57 centimetres tall. That's a tall bird. The adult has dark brown to dark reddish brown feathers on the top part of its body, with barred feathers from its throat down in its belly all the way down to its tail. Its large yellow eyes are exaggerated by dark eye patches. 
The rufous owl mostly inhabits rainforest zones in Australia and New Guinea and is often found roosting in shaded overgrown vegetation. It is confined to the northern part of the country, with its three subspecies inhabiting Queensland, Northern Territory and Western Australia. If you are really lucky, you might hear one late at night or very early in the morning. That recording was by Mark Anderson. Caesar says that he's had many days where he's missed out on seeing a target bird and he's become philosophical about it. I think every birder can relate to that sensation of dipping, right? Of like missing out on a bird. And honestly, yeah, it sucks. It obviously sucks. It's not a good feeling, particularly if you've spent money to go to a location or particularly if you only have a short period of time in this new location. But look, I try and have a bit of a, you know, a whole more wholesome view on it. That's hopefully not going to be my last opportunity ever to find the bird, right? It's just another bird that I can still see for the first time. And so, and that day wasn't going to be wasted regardless. I got to hang out with my friend. I got to explore a new environment that I'd never been to before. And I saw a bunch of new birds as well. So yeah, even if I hadn't seen the Rufus Owl, which of course I would have been disappointed in, like it wouldn't have been a waste. Australia is home to 11 species of owl, which collectively cover every state and territory. If you cast your mind back to episode 53, you might remember Stephen Debus explaining how both birds of prey and owls can be classified as raptors because they have hooked beaks, powerful legs and feet that are known as talons, great eyesight, and eat mostly meat. Owls also have superior hearing for two reasons. Their ears are placed asymmetrically, meaning that their ears are at different heights on each side of their face, so that the sounds reach each ear at a different time. And the facial disc that most owls have around their eyes helps to focus sounds onto their ear cavities so that they can hear even the most quietest of sounds. How cool is that? Another cool thing is that most owls can turn their heads up to 270 degrees, which is important because their eyes are actually fixed and can't move with their eye sockets. No wonder these amazing birds have captured Caesar's interest. Yes, owls I think are just marvellously mysterious and I think that that's been reflected in a lot of cultures around the world and just like, you know, the, the way that owls are perceived in media and things like that. You know, you think of an owl in a children's book, or you think of an owl in a cartoon or a, a movie, and you always think of something mysterious. I think that that's just something that resonated with me the first time I started finding them. I was fortunate enough to have friends and have made friends that got to introduce me to owls. I don't think I ever would have gotten into them in the same way that I, I did if it weren't for those people. And, um, Getting to stumble across a powerful owl in the middle of the day is one of the most wonderful experiences I think I've ever had in my life. And just, it feels like you've stumbled across something sacred or something, you know, something that you really shouldn't be observing as this, this wonderfully magical animal that, you know, is trying beyond all else to not be seen. And so, um, yeah, if you can do that respectfully and you can witness that, like it's just, it's intoxicating. Anywhere I go, everything I do is sort of framed by how I can find new owls. <laughs> it's hard because they're a, spe- they're a controversial species to look for, right? There's a lot of scrutiny around methods in which you can ethically find owls. I think that in Australia particularly, like I don't think it is scrutinized as heavily as it pro- probably is overseas. I think if international listeners and bird watchers realize the techniques that we use in Australia to find ours, it'd probably be mortified. But it's just something I think that it would be wonderful to get more research into, to really understand the effects and um, 
the impacts that we have as birders and wildlife photographers on, on these cryptic species. You can learn about the powerful owl in Weekend Birder Episode 10 with Nick Bradsworth. The powerful owl is Australia's largest owl, standing at 65 centimetres tall. Australia's smallest and also most common owl is the southern boobook owl, which stands at 25 centimetres tall. Sometimes known as the Australian boobook, the southern boobook is the smallest and most widespread owl, with four subspecies covering mainland Australia. A quintessential sound of the Australian bush at night is the double hoot of the southern boobook. That recording's by Mark Anderson. This owl roosts in dense foliage or safely inside a tree hollow. Its diet consists of large insects, small mammals and birds. Caesar considers himself very lucky to have a close relationship with the Southern Boobook. Soon after getting obsessed with owls, I was fortunate enough to start raising Boobook owls. If you forgive the pun, I was taken under the wing of uh, Mel Pope, who's a wildlife rehabilitator for Cobble Bird Sanctuary. Um, in southeast Queensland, and there's just like a wonderful um, wealth of knowledge when it comes to the rehabilitation of birds of prey, and particularly owls. And yes, yeah, she taught me everything I know really about handling and raising wild owls. And um, through that, I was I was really fortunate to raise boobook owls from the size of little fluffy white tennis balls and up to the point of release, which is wonderful. And now that I live where I do, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, a flight aviary and a soft release enclosure. So I don't raise as many owls as I used to, but I'm still in the position where I can soft release other people's owls. Most owls are nocturnal and only hunt at night, although some are active at dawn and dusk as well. They have a number of remarkable characteristics that make them crafty hunters. For example, their feathers are structured so that they can fly without making any sound. Like most birds, they're unable to chew and will most likely eat their prey whole. Or if unable to, they'll tear it off into pieces. Owls, like other raptors, then regurgitate the non-nutritious parts of their prey. Several hours after eating, they'll produce a pellet, which is basically gizzards, and then they'll be ready to eat again. We learned that rainbow bee-eaters also do this in episode 45 with Stephanie Chambers. Caesar's podcast, Death by Birding, evolved from his connection to owls and other local birds and a desire to share his love of birds with others. The same way most of my projects do, just through like chronic procrastination and um, just my everlasting desire to uh, start projects and then never really follow through. Unfortunately, like starting this one, a bunch of people started listening, which meant that uh, I sort of had to keep making it, which is kind of like it's good motivation. But yeah, it, like I just sort of the same reason I think you started this podcast, as you've told me, is that. Like I wanted to make a podcast that I would listen to. I wanted um, something fun and lighthearted, but was still about stuff that I love, which is wildlife and nature, right? And as I said before, birding is so accessible. And I think that birding kind of has a bit of a cool, I don't know, subculture around it now, right? It's kind of becoming maybe a bit counterculture. I don't know. It just feels like the realm of birdwatching has somehow just become cool, which is nice, right? It's a bit punk rock, I think. In like, you know, people look at you weird when you say, I'm into bird watching, right? It's like, they look at me particularly, I'm like a bald bearded dude covered in tattoos and like, you like bird watching? I'm like, yeah, because birds are freaking cool. Like, everyone should like bird watching. And so, um, yeah, that's what I want to do. Make something fun, make something funny, 
just uh, talk rubbish with some friends and uh, make burning accessible for everyone. I think like a lot of naturalists, like showing people the thing that you love for the first time and seeing them react in a certain way is so fulfilling. Some of his episodes feature him taking guests out birdwatching for the first time. It's a highly enjoyable listen and has really grown my appetite to hang out in southeast Queensland. Yeah, so I'm really, really fortunate uh, and privileged to live on Giniborough land up in Mount Glorious, which is sort of a subtropical mountainous region, part of the Diagula range, if not one of the higher points on that range. I think we're at about 700 to 740 metres above sea level. And yeah, it's just a beautiful subtropical rainforest that I live in and sort of surrounded by paradise rifle birds. I'm surrounded by region and satin bowel birds, noisy pitters, some great sooty owls, uh, yellow-throated scrub wren, and uh, wampoo fruit doves, rose crown fruit doves. I can go on. I mean, it's it's pretty typical um, southeast Queensland subtropical rainforest. We've got pickabean forests, which are a type of palm tree. We've got big old eucalyptus grandis, the flooded gums, which um, sadly logged pretty extensively, but there are still a few remaining. And those are the trees that say your greatest sooty owls would, would nest in. I've lived at the bottom of this mountain for a lot of my sort of adolescent adult life. When I was in high school, that's where I lived. And even as a child, we used to come up here on, on public holidays and come up here for picnics and for barbecues and stuff like that. And so it was just something that always attracted me. And when I started really getting into bird photography and uh, frog photography and just you know natural history in general, I was up here so two or three times a week. And yeah, when the time came to to sort of settle down and to find my own patch of uh, patch of forest, like this is the one that felt very natural to come to. I've been here for four years, and I'm just constantly yeah in awe of where we live. I just feel very very privileged and very lucky. I'm lucky enough to have fireflies around my house so every year when the fireflies start i try and invite as many friends up as possible to see the fireflies just because it feels like so wonderfully rewarding to see them get excited and i think that the podcast is an extension of that uh, i'm inviting a lot of birders on the pod but i'm also trying to invite a lot of people that aren't necessarily birders and then showing them what it's about and getting firsthand to see their excitement you know when i show them a regent bowbird <laughs> show them something wonderful something they you know, maybe an owl or something like that. And so, yeah, I've had a, I've been lucky enough to get a bunch of messages from people say, "Oh, I'm not. I've never really thought about birds as something I'd be into, but I've started listening to the podcast because of whatever my friends might be listening to it." And um, yeah, I've started bird watching. I just got my first pair of binoculars or something like that. And you're like, "Wow, it feels worth it." Just from having those stories and having people like Luke Henry, the bassist for the Violent Soho and DZ Death Rays, say like, "Oh yeah, I really want to." do bird watching now. It's like, oh my goodness, it's just really cool. It's a nice feeling, right? Like, it's probably quite a selfish endeavor in that sense. Hosting a podcast and talking about birding with people who may or may not be interested in birds has caused Caesar to become reflective. Yeah, I think that when starting birding or bird watching, whatever sort of capacity you enjoy experiencing birds in the wild, it's so easy to get caught up with sort of lists, right? And it's that's a great part of the hobby. Don't get me wrong. It's something I love. I love keeping a list and I love taking note of all the birds that I see. And it's uh, just an it's sort of an added game to what is otherwise, you know, just experiencing nature. I also think it's important to remember that like a big list doesn't necessarily make you a good birder, 
right? I think that a, a big list means that you've had enough time to go to enough different places, enough different habitats. And ultimately, you know, that might be quite a controversial thing to say, but if you have enough money and time, you can have an enormous list and it doesn't necessarily make you a good birder. The, the metric by which I personally would measure a good birder is someone that understands the birds and you know is, is good at identifying birds in their habitat. And something I'm not personally great with is identifying bird calls and sort of understanding how these birds work in a greater ecosystem in a greater environment. Because ultimately, like bird watching is an extension of naturalism, right? Of being a, a you know an advocate of, of nature. And as birders, I think that we're failing if we're not if we're not aware and not conscious of you know, the greater environment and the role in which birds play in that greater ecosystem, I think is really important. That doesn't mean to say you can't enjoy building your list because it's addictive and it's fun and that's okay. It's like, it's a, it's like a gateway drug, right? But the hope is that eventually that'll lead to a greater understanding of nature in general. I just think that the more podcasts and the more education and information we have in this space, the better. You know, not everyone is going to connect with my podcast, right? And in the same, not everyone's going to connect with any podcast. And so I think the more, and not even just podcasts, like the more publications and the more information we've got out there and the more people engaging with others in social media and introducing people to nature through those formats, like it just grows the team. And that's ultimately what I think we have to be, right? We're a team. We all have the same goals, whether we approach them different ways or not. I think our goals are to conserve nature and to protect birds. And uh, the more people on that team, the better. Many thanks to Caesar for sharing his love of owls and birdwatching with us. Death by Birding is available now on your favourite podcast app, or you can visit deathbybirding.com to find out more. Friends, we have some awesome episode topics ahead, including little penguins, birdwatching in Darwin, and a whole episode on Thornbills. Hit subscribe on your podcast app to keep the good times rolling.